he put people on a ketogenic diet versus a plant-based diet for two weeks. Very clearly, he showed in this study that in less than two weeks on a ketogenic diet, insulin resistance was worse. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high-performance mind, body, and lifestyle. Hi, friends. I am so excited for today's podcast episode. It's actually part one because we didn't quite get to finish the recording. So there is going to be a part two to this episode, which I'm absolutely thrilled about because I had so much more to chat to Dr. Will B about. If you haven't come across him yet, he is the Gut Health MD, um, Dr. Will Bolschwitz. And he's just absolutely amazing. He's an MD. He's been an MD for 14 years and he combines the latest cutting edge medical research with his research on how to optimize the health of your gut and your microbiome. And he really truly believes that he can help you shift your lifestyle and make better evidence-based choices more in a month than he could in a lifetime of scribbling prescriptions on a pad. And he believes that the gut is the, the root problem of most things. And when we get to the root cause and we fix it and find out how to prevent it in the first place, we can really optimize our health and our longevity. I speak to so many people who are on ketogenic diets, low carb diets, and the thing that they're missing is that when you go very low carb, you are really missing out on fiber. And as Dr. B explains in this podcast episode, in the US, 19 out of 20 people are fiber deficient. In the UK, it's something like nine out of 10. I think the key thing that people miss when they go on a very low carb diet or something like the ketogenic diet is just how much they're missing out on fiber and a whole host of micronutrients, antioxidants that protect your body, but also importantly, your gut microbiome feeds on fiber and they make things like short chain fatty acids, which as Dr. B explains, are probably the most healing and anti-inflammatory compounds on the planet. So I just can't overstress this enough. Um, optimizing the health of your gut is key, especially as a woman. You have a very um, unique part of your microbiome called the estrobolum, which really helps to regulate the amount of estrogen that is released back into the body. So your liver may have done a wonderful job of detoxifying excess estrogen, but if your microbiome isn't optimized and specifically the estrobolum, then you can actually have more of that estrogen envelope that's been packaged up for excretion actually opened up and released back into your system and that is a more toxic form than you would want circulating within the body and that's down to something called beta glucuronidase but the key thing here the key takeaway is to really really consume as much diversity as possible as you can in your diet and to really optimize the health of your microbiome we did this on a challenge in my membership the female biohacker collective back in may it was absolutely amazing people were just feeling better within one week of doing it having more regular bowel movements, feeling more energized. And actually, we, we shop for 30 plants across the week. Many people were getting 40, 50, even 50 plus. They were doing it with their kids. It was, it was transformational. It was absolutely amazing to see and everyone sharing. And it's such a wonderful community over there. If you haven't checked it out yet, please go and have a look. It's bit.ly forward slash female hyphen biohacker. This is really just about getting around similar people to you and having the support of myself, my health coach, Maura, um, who's absolutely lovely and leads all the challenges and a wonderful community of women who also really, really want to optimize their health just like you. And community and your peer group effectively is everything in terms of you making those changes. But in today's podcast, I really want you to focus on how you can start incorporating more plants into your diet. Many people do worry about the fact that they're going to introduce more carbohydrates, that they're going to have less blood glucose control. 
the research doesn't show that. In fact, it's been shown that fruit does not make you fat. Yes, no, fruit does not make you fat. People get really, really concerned about this. Your microbiome needs fiber. Fiber actually provides a mesh and limits the amount of glucose that's going into the blood um, and also slows it down and gives those gut bacteria the ever important nutrients that they themselves need as well. So there's so much in this. As I say, this is just part one of uh, this gut um, optimization uh, podcast series. We're going to be back for part two with Dr. Wilby. He's so much fun. He's so knowledgeable. He's just absolutely incredible. So let me now introduce you to the wonderful Dr. Wilby. So Dr. B, it is so amazing to have you on the show. I cannot wait to quiz you on everything gut health related, blood sugar related, uh, blood lipid related. You are just a complete expert in this field. First of all, a very warm welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Angela. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, I'm really excited. I think let's just start. I mean, this audience, my audience is not, they have a very good understanding of health and, and biohacking related topics, but the microbiome is complex. Why don't we just start there and give a basic outline? Like what is the microbiome and the importance of good gut health? Oh man, uh, I love this topic. So the microbiome, this is something that has been completely overlooked for the vast majority of our lives for you and I. Um, it wasn't until very recently, like less than 15 years ago, that we developed the technology to allow us to actually take a look at the gut microbiome and understand what's there. The reason why is because th th there are these invisible microbes. So covering us from the top of our head to the tip of our toes, we are completely coated with microbes, mostly bacteria, like on my thumb, I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say this on my thumb, there are as many microbes as there are people in the UK, like literally right there. And I can't see them. But if I had a microscope, I could zoom in. And I would see this just world, this ecosystem teeming with life. The microbiome is most concentrated not on our skin, but instead inside of us in our colon. This is the gut microbiome. This is the principal place where you will find our microbes. And in there, we have 38 trillion microbes, which is a very large number. <laughs> it's hard for us to wrap our mind around this. Like how big is 38 trillion? Put that into perspective for me, Dr. B. Okay. In our universe, we have about 100 billion stars in our universe. So if we took our entire universe full of stars and we collapsed it down into a small little ball, you would have to put 380 universes full of stars into a person's colon <laughs> to equal the number of microbes that they have inside of them right now. Every single one of us, you, I, all of us, these microbes are there with a purpose. They're not just hanging out. They're not parasites. I mean, there may be parasites. And in fact, some parasites can be good for us, believe it or not. But they're there with a purpose because through the entirety of human history, our evolutionary history, every single second has included humans and their microbes. We are a team. We're in it together. And they want to support us. They want us to thrive because when we thrive, they do too. And over the course of human evolution, let me just say, Angela, that speaking as a medical doctor for a moment, when I put this, this sort of narrative into, um, when, I, when I look at the role that these microbes have in our life, it is so clear to me as a medical doctor that we really, really grew to trust them. 
because we allowed them to take up a role in the absolute most essential parts of human health. Mm. We need them for proper digestion, for metabolism, for our hormones, for our immune system, for our mood, for our brain health. Every single one of these things, it's not just our biology. It's our biology being supported by the gut microbiome. And so it's quite fascinating to ponder that here we are and it's the 21st century and it feels like we just discovered a new organ. This new organ is connected to our digestion, access to nutrients, our metabolism, our immune system, our hormones, our mood, our brain health. It is the most powerful, most important thing for human health. And it's not even human. It's amazing. And we have more um, of the, the bacteria cells than we do human cells, right? We are more bacteria than we are human. We are more bacteria than we are human. Uh, we are at a minimum less than 50% human cells. And if you look at our genetic code, 99.5% of our genetic code comes from these microbes. So we are less than 1% human when it comes to genetics. Which is absolutely staggering. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's just mind blowing. When you put it like that and how many universes, it just, the, the mind almost can't comprehend. Um, so obviously we all want to be happy, happy and healthy, should I say. And you're saying these microbes are on our side. Presumably that's down to having enough of the good ones and and not feeding the bad ones through kind of lots of sugar and things like that, right? We want to, we want to kind of nourish the soil in that garden as well as we can. Oh, a hundred percent. And, and so, yeah, what's exciting about this and one of my big messages that I want to share with the world is that the gut microbiome is not rigid. It is not stuck and it is not trying to punish you. The gut microbiome is adaptable. Okay. It is constantly evolving. And it can be shaped and formed by your diet and lifestyle choices. You get to make this what you want it to be. Now, the problem is when we ignore it and we don't understand it, which is the way that it's been for most of our lives, we end up in unhealthy dietary and lifestyle patterns where we're eating like a lot of junk food, a lot of fast food. I mean, in the United States, 60% of our calories are coming from ultra processed foods. 60% did you say? In the United wow. States, 60% come from ultra processed foods. Now I know it's not that bad pretty in the UK, off. but it's still pretty high. Yeah, I don't think we're far off here, I have to say. I think, right. I mean, it was amazing two years ago when we were locked down for COVID and the first thing that opened way ahead of gyms or anything was, was fast food restaurants. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, the problem is that there's a reason why fast food restaurants are successful. There's a reason. It's convenient. It's, it's, it tastes pretty good. I mean, let's just be honest, it does. And it's cheap, right? But the problem is that there's a price that you pay. You just don't realize it when you eat that way. Yeah. And so we, we have this diet and lifestyle that is so far removed from who we are as authentic humans. And as a result, our gut microbiome is struggling. And the reason why is because even though we are overnourished, even though we are overfed, they are starving we're not feeding them their food and any life on this planet it requires sustenance it requires energy we require energy without food i become weak yeah 
I become less capable. Well, that's exactly what's happening to our gut microbes. We are consuming a diet and we are living a lifestyle that is disempowering them, making them weak and incapable. And when they become weak and incapable, unfortunately, it shows um, not necessarily so much on a test, but more so in your life where you get digestive health issues like irritable bowel syndrome or constipation or acid reflux, or it could be an immune issue. Like you could have allergic issues or autoimmune issues. It could be a metabolism issue where you get, you know, uh, weight gain, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes. That's the metabolic syndrome. And that entire package, every single thing that I just mentioned is connected to our gut microbes. Mm. Could be in our well, hormones. So, for a lot of people, right? A lot of people. Yeah to you know i mean autoimmunity i think people have been hearing about but the fact that it's linked to our cholesterol levels our blood sugar uh you know insulin sensitivity and things like that it's these guys are in control is what you're saying uh, and we and they are intertwined they are intertwined with human health and these things are not separate you can't separate the gut microbes from humans you can't separate our metabolism from our immune system these things are connected to one another and so we are we are uh this you know, one super organism, right. And, um, that contains within it, like within us is this ecosystem and that ecosystem needs to be nourished and healthy in order for us to be a healthy super organism. So how can you get more plants into your diet and how can you get the balance of your microbiome optimized in terms of sufficient probiotics and prebiotics into your gut? Well, the easiest way that I found personally that tastes absolutely incredible is through Athletic Greens. I just think it's the most amazing green supplement. Now hear me out because I basically thought I've tried so many greens powders and they've either made me gassy or I could not stand the taste. But I'm so excited that I finally found one that I absolutely love the taste of and look forward to. I take it on an empty stomach first thing in the morning. It really helps to keep my skin clear and glowing. Um, it helps to optimize the uh, health of my microbiome. And on top of that, not only does it have probiotics and prebiotics, it's got 75 different vitamins and minerals and whole food sourced nutrients in just one serving. And it tastes amazing. It's got no GMOs, no herbicides or pesticides, no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners. And it tastes incredible. And you've got to try it. And you'll get uh, a free one year supply of vitamin D plus five travel packs if you go to this link. Just head over to athleticgreens.com forward slash Angela Foster. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Angela Foster. And you can just start tasting the deliciousness and share with me the results you're getting. I'm absolutely loving this. So you've got to go and try it. Athleticgreens.com forward slash Angela Foster. And you know what you're saying there about the fact that it's dynamic. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it's nice to hear. And I, I knew that. And I think it's, it's reassuring though as well. And I think it will be for many listeners because I, as a mother, for example, had pelvic disproportion. So all of my three were born by C-sections. They've always had this little guilt, you know, what have I done? How have I affected their microbiome? But the fact that you're saying it's dynamic, what would you um, say for somebody who has one of these problems? And I'm guessing it depends on what the issue is to fix. But if you start to, and, and we'll talk in a moment about the ideal foods to be eating to support your microbiome, if people pay attention to it, how quickly do you think they can start to redress the balance within their gut? How quickly does it respond to what you're doing? Well, there was a study that was published in 2014, Lawrence David out of Duke University. It was, it was published in the journal Nature. 
And you have to understand this was less than 10 years ago. And at that time, we knew very little about how diet affects the gut microbiome. So this was a revolutionary study at the time. And basically, they showed in that study that in less than 24 hours, your gut microbiome is changing. So the choices that you make today, your gut microbiome will attempt to adapt and evolve to catch up to the choices that you have made today. And by tomorrow, it's moving in that direction. Now, if you make a radical change, if you do something that's like, you know, aggressive and severe and totally different than what you've been doing the last three months, then you are asking your gut microbiome to adapt and evolve at a pace that it's not capable of doing. I mean, it needs a chance, right? This is like exercise. Think of your gut like a muscle. It can be trained. It can be fortified. It can be made stronger. It can be rehabilitated. All of those things are possible. But there's a process that you go through when you go to the gym. You don't go on January 1st, your first day of the gym, and lift the heaviest weight in the entire building. That doesn't work. That's how you hurt yourself. What you do is you go on January 1st and you say, what am I capable of? Let me go just slightly more than that. And you do that. And then all of a sudden your body becomes more capable. And then you move again to a higher weight. And that's how we train. And that's exactly the way that our gut evolves as well. Our gut can be adapted and trained to our dietary choices. Over time, gradually. Otherwise, people get really issues like bloating and discomfort, right? If they suddenly try and put all these plants into their diet when they haven't been used to it. Yeah, this is, this is why I'm not a believer in like um, any diet being done in a radical way, frankly. Like any diet, no matter, even if it's the one that you perceive that I'm recommending. I don't want you to be radical about it. I still want you to ease into it. One of my big phrases is low and slow is the tempo, which by the way, was a beastie boy song from the late, from the, (laughs) um, but low and slow is the tempo because when you, when you start to introduce new foods into your diet, when you start low, you are making it gentle and easy on your gut. When you go slow, you're giving it a chance to evolve and adapt with you. And if you apply this, Uh, approach to foods that perhaps you believe that you're not capable of eating, what you will discover is just like you don't think that you're capable of running a marathon. If you work through the training process, you are capable. You can do it. That's very true. And if you build build up gradually, right, it's about getting 1% better, I think, every single day. Exactly. Um, No one jumps out of bed and goes running for 26 miles. Everyone goes and trains for months to prepare for that moment. Yeah, so true. Um, so with, with that in mind, when we're looking at optimizing the health of the microbiome, um, what would you say are the key foods that we need to, need to focus on? Like, you know, I've, from, from when I've looked at some of the literature, polyphenols seem to be uh, very important in terms of the way they feed the microbiome and also the health-giving properties for us. Um, and, and there's definitely some foods that I know we should be avoiding. So I want to come to those later, but what would you say, like, what's the optimal amount of plants, for example, that people could sort of should have as a goal in terms of getting into their diet? Well, um, I think, let me start by saying this, that when we talk about what are the foods that are good for the microbiome, it's most simple for me to describe them as the prebiotic foods. So people have heard of probiotics. Probiotics are living microbes that have been demonstrated through clinical research to have benefits to human health. You can find them in a capsule, like a supplement. You can find them in fermented foods. Both of those things are great. 
but they also are, are already inside of you. They're not, you're not devoid of microbes. You have probiotic bacteria inside of you right now. They just need to be fed. When they are fed, they are empowered. And their food are prebiotics. Prebiotics means food for the microbiome that leads to downstream benefits to human health. And there are three main prebiotics that people need to hear about. You just mentioned one, the polyphenols. Polyphenols are the antioxidant compounds that you will find in plant foods. They are responsible for the colors of the plants. When we say eat the rainbow, what we're, that's, that's basically scientific code for saying eat a lot of different varieties of polyphenols. And these polyphenols without our microbiome would be mostly worthless. So we celebrate things like resveratrol, resveratrol that you will find in red wine. People go, oh, resveratrol, this is the anti-aging polyphenol. David Sinclair talks about resveratrol all the time. Without our microbiome, resveratrol would do very little. It is activated by our gut microbes. And so, so polyphenols have a prebiotic effect on our gut microbes. They support them and they grow stronger as a result. The other two, poly, the other two prebiotics are fiber and resistant starches. Now we can lump these two together because they work basically the same. I'm going to talk about fiber, but just I want the listeners to understand resistant starches basically work the same way. It's just that from a biochemical perspective, they're not exactly fiber. They're a little bit different. But fiber, the story is that it, it gets into our mouth and it passes through our intestine and it is not digested by human enzymes. We lack the enzymes to take care of our fiber. This is where the microbiome comes in. We need our microbiome to process and digest fiber. We don't have the enzymes. They have 60,000 of them. And when the fiber arrives in the colon, this is their food. They will consume it. They will grow stronger. And then they will do something that is something on the spectrum of like a Harry Potter magic trick where fiber stops being fiber and it starts being what are called short chain fatty acids. Butyrate, acetate, propionate. These short chain fatty acids are, Angela, in my 20 years of studying medicine, the most healing, most anti-inflammatory compounds that I've ever come across. Wow. We get them from consuming fiber. Now here's the important thing. Like, so I could run through all of the benefits of these short chain fatty acids and all of the benefits of fiber. Suffice it to say, less risk of heart disease, less risk of cancer, less likely to have a stroke, less risk of type two diabetes, and I could keep going for a while. But the point is that in my country, if I go out into the street, 19 out of 20 people that I come into contact with are not eating enough fiber. In your country, if I go out in the street, it's probably more like nine out of 10. So we have this massive fiber deficiency. Fiber is the preferred food for our gut microbes. We need our gut microbes to be healthy humans. And I don't understand with everything that surrounds fiber of how healthy it could be, why this is not being shouted on the news every single night with the amount of money that we're spending on healthcare and how sick our countries are in both cases. I agree, I agree. I mean, I guess the question I would have then, what would you say to people who are advocates of the carnivore diet and the keto diet? What do you think are the net effects of that on their microbiome? 
So um, let's talk about keto and separate that from the carnivore carnivore diet for a moment, okay? Because the carnivore diet is zero grams of fiber by definition. You have zero grams of fiber. The Apart from some people, like they combine it, don't they, with a few berries and things, but very, very micro amounts. Yeah, I guess if you're following, the, the, there are some people who do a variation on a carnivore diet, but the carnivore diet yeah. in its in its um, traditional form is a completely animal product based diet. So, and there's there's no fiber in animal products. Zero grams of fiber. Uh, could there be polyphenols? Yes, because the cow was eating grass. <laughs> so you're getting yeah. some diluted out, like really minimal version of polyphenols that are in the meat because the cow was eating some grass. Um, so speaking to the ketogenic diet, the thing about uh, the ketogenic diet that I want people to understand is that, so can people lose weight on a keto diet? Yes. Can they feel like there's the appearance that their blood sugar is more tightly controlled? hundred percent. Is their insulin sensitivity better? Research says no. Research says no. Yeah. Because what drives insulin resistance is saturated fat. And the majority of people who go on a ketogenic diet are not getting their fat from olive oil and avocados. The majority of people who do this in real life are getting it from animal products where that fat is saturated fat. And so there's research by Kevin Hall, who's an NIH metabolism researcher, where he put people on a ketogenic diet versus a plant-based diet for two weeks. It's a fascinating study. I could really unpack it if you want me to. It would take me a couple minutes. But the point is that very clearly he showed in this study that in less than two weeks on a ketogenic diet, insulin resistance was worse. Okay. So, so yeah, can we unpack that a little bit and why that's happening? So insulin resistance is where now the cells are becoming resistant literally to insulin, right? So the pancreas is having to produce more. Um, and this can lead then obviously to other metabolic dysfunction. Why, why would that be the case if there, so this is when he's, when he's done this study, uh, this is a high saturated fat version of the ketogenic diet. So it's not like people who are doing like keto green, which is very different and involves more plants, for example. Yeah. So, so I think one of the main points, like, let me say this before we jump, go any further. Um, uh, nutrition is very nuanced. There are strengths to every single diet. I, I like even the carnivore diet. I'll tell you what I think is good about it. There's, there's good stuff in every single diet. I could, with the help of a registered dietitian craft, what I would describe as a healthy version of a ketogenic diet. But the problem is that's not what people are actually eating. Yeah. Right. So that's like, that's like an academic exercise. Can I prove that the ketogenic diet can be done in a healthy way? Yes, I can. But that's not the way that people in the real world are going to live. So in this study, he basically fed them a diet that is what I would describe as consistent with what you see as an average ketogenic diet that people eat. And that means that it's an animal-based ketogenic diet, high fat, 70% of your calories come from fat, very high percentage from protein and a very low percentage from carbohydrates. Now, the problem is fiber is a carbohydrate. So if you're cutting carbs, then you are typically cutting fiber unless you are being very cautious about, again, how you craft this like perfect idealized version of a ketogenic diet. And when we talk about insulin resistance, we have to separate blood sugar. Cause I think that the, I see people conflating this all the time. They look at their blood sugar and they go, Oh, this is 
fixed my insulin resistance. That is not true. Right? The avoidance of carbohydrates in the interest of lowering your blood sugar is not fixing your insulin resistance. Fixing your insulin resistance means you can consume carbohydrates and not spike your blood sugar. Yeah. That's what insulin sensitivity is. Um, so the, the, to be a little nerdy, I hope you don't mind Angela about this. Yeah. Okay, cool. So the, the concept here is lipotoxicity. So I'm going to talk for a few minutes about lipotoxicity because this is what insulin resistance is. Okay. When we eat a meal, our food is unpacked and blood sugar enters into the bloodstream. And there are certain, there's a, a, the body has an adapted mechanism to help to balance and regulate our blood sugar. So it's not just literally opening the floodgates and allowing this blood sugar from our meal to overwhelm our body. And the way that it does this is to absorb blood sugar, mostly into muscle, believe it or not. So there are specific channels that will suck the blood, the blood glucose molecules into muscle cells but also the liver is involved and the pancreas is involved. Insulin helps to facilitate this. Insulin helps to facilitate these muscles and tissues absorbing and sucking up this blood sugar. Now, the problem is in order to absorb the blood sugar, you have these channels. What if you plug up the channel? What if the channel is closed? So now it's not capable. And what if you're trying to shoehorn the blood glucose into the muscle now? That's what insulin resistance is. You need way higher insulin levels in order to shoehorn and push that blood sugar into the muscle cells because the cells, the, the, the muscle is not absorbing it as readily as easily. And what, what stops us from absorbing the blood sugar is, it's, this is not by the way, in isolation, there are other factors too, don't get me wrong. Um, I'm not uh, here to just vilify one nutrient or micronutrient. But we believe that saturated fat drives insulin resistance. It's one of the most powerful drivers of insulin resistance. And so in these uh, Kevin Hall research studies, he, he put people, I, I'll share the article with you if you like, so you can share it with your team, with your, with your community. Um, he put people on an animal-based ketogenic diet and a plant-based diet um, for two weeks each. And during that time, he told them to eat until they were full. They did not restrict anything. They did not count calories or anything like that. And they did not like limit portions. So if you ask for more food, they give you more food. You ask for a snack, they give you a snack. The people were actually living in a medical ward at the NIH campus. So in other words, it's almost like people have given up their lives for a month in order to be a part of a research study. And they live on a campus and they only eat the food that's handed to them. On the ketogenic diet, people lost weight very, very quickly, like within two to three days. But the problem is that when you look in the details of what they were losing actually was water weight, water, water weight or muscle mass. It was not fat. Um, and we see this. If you go low carb, you will burn up your glycogen stores and you will look great. I actually do this myself. Like if I'm getting ready for the beach, go low carb for a day or two, you look awesome. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But what you're doing is you're not, you're not burning fat. That doesn't happen that quickly. What you're doing is you're actually getting rid of water, water weight and getting that water off makes you look very lean. Um, but the goal is to burn fat. 
That's what we want from a metabolic perspective. And so in this study, on it was, again, it was two weeks, people were not burning fat on the ketogenic diet. On the plant-based diet, they did. So the weight loss was much more slow on the plant-based diet, but that's because it was fat burn. And the reason that it worked, which is kind of interesting, is that, again, they were not counting calories or macros or anything like that. They said, eat until you're full. So in both cases, when you look at the details of the study, both groups were consuming food until they, leveled, until they met the same level of satisfaction. Like, hey, I feel good. I'm, I've had enough. But on the plant-based diet, that was 700 calories less per day. Interesting. And yet fat actually also increases satiety. That's really interesting. Just curious, when you look at like the macronutrient composition of what they were eating on the plant-based diet, what would you say was a rough, I know they weren't counting calories, but percentage wise, how much uh, percentage of um, carbohydrates were they eating compared to other things? Like, did they have protein and fats alongside it? And also how much fiber were they eating? Yeah. So basically, uh, plant-based diet, high fiber, low saturated fat, ketogenic diet, high saturated fat, low fiber, the, um, carbohydrate. I, I don't recall the exact numbers. I have looked at it and I just don't want to be completely wrong, but if I'm going to venture a guess, I think the carbohydrates was somewhere in the 55 to 60% range. And the fat content was still there. It was not low fat. It was not less than 10% fat, something like that. Um, and then the protein was held constant between the two diets. So you had similar levels of, of protein content for both. So, you know, basically what we see, and there's actually a microbiome explanation for this when it comes to satiety, which by the way, when it comes to our metabolism and weight loss, this is a wildly underrated thing mm. because we have normalized calorie counting mm. and that is unnecessary when you are eating the right food. And were they, are they able to just eat, say, as much starchy carbs as they want, or were they encouraged to eat more, you know, like high fiber, low starch carbohydrates, like cruciferous vegetables, leafy greens? Were they given any guidance on that? I don't think that they were. I think that they were given generically a plant-based diet. Now, in terms of the details, like I don't. So, uh, you know, as a framework of this, Kevin Hall. I just to describe Kevin Hall. This is a guy who's a metabolism researcher. And he, I, I do not think he eats a vegan or plant-based diet. Um, he's not trying to like prove a point. I think that he is someone who's trying to understand metabolism. He works at the National Institute of Health. He's one of the leading metabolism researchers in the world. Um, but you know, in terms of their diet, I wouldn't say that the plant-based diet was like, uh, uh, like predominantly leafy greens and like a super healthy version of a plant-based diet. I think it was like a very practical real world version of the plant-based diet. It just happened to be plants. Yeah, that's so interesting. So interesting. Um, one question I uh, had for you is what your view is in, uh, there's a couple of things here that I think people are maybe, a lot of people are excluding, like many, many people are excluding wheat completely and gluten. Um, I've seen you, for example, post uh, things like sourdough bread. What are your thoughts here in terms of, there's obviously the issue of intolerances, but then also the health of the, the microbiome. What does your research indicate in relation to that? So first of all, if you, if you have celiac disease, you need to exclude all gluten, period. End of story. There is no compromise and there is no reintroduction ever. Mm -hmm.
So I just want to interrupt today's show to tell you about how you can develop metabolic flexibility with a very cool device called Lumen. It uses a CO2 sensor and flow meter to determine the CO2 concentration in a single breath. It's so quick and efficient to use and it will tell you whether you're burning fats, carbs or a combination of the two. And it gives you intelligent recommendations on a daily basis in terms of how to optimize your macronutrient ratios, how many carbs you're eating, fats and protein to really get your metabolism back on track. It's brilliant and it gives you a MetFlex score as well to show you how well you're developing metabolic flexibility, which is really the ability of your body to burn both carbs and fats on demand, which is the most flexible, it's best for longevity, and it's also the most fun. And you can get £50 or $50 off by heading over to AngelaFoster.me forward slash Lumen and entering code Angela at checkout. That's AngelaFoster.me forward slash Lumen and entering code Angela at checkout. Now let's get back to the show. Um, celiac disease is pretty common. I, I've had days, Angela, where I diagnosed three people in one day with celiac disease. It's crazy. Like they say that it's one in a hundred. It's hard for me to believe that when I'm diagnosing it three times in the same day. Yeah. Um, in my book, my new book, the fiber field cookbook, I talk about something called the big three of food sensitivity, which are three things that like, I want to put people inside my head as a gastroenterologist. I want you to think the way that I think. So when I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about what causes food intolerances in people and how I can fix them very quickly, these three things, one of them is celiac disease, one of them is constipation, and one of them is gallbladder issues. Those are, those are things that I'm going after right off the bat. Now, to answer your question, Angela, with regard to wheat, let's move beyond celiac disease. Let's assume for a moment that a person does not have celiac disease, but perhaps they have a sensitivity where they feel unwell when they consume gluten-containing foods. All right. I think that, first of all, we would all agree that there is a very broad spectrum of wheat-based foods. There's a lot of junk. Yeah. I would argue probably most of the calories that exist in your market that are wheat-based are unhealthy, ultra-processed foods. Let's take those ultra-processed foods, those like ultra-refined carbohydrates, and put them to the side because I think we all agree, this is the thing, like even the carnivore diet, we all agree those are unhealthy foods. And let's instead focus on healthier versions like whole grain bread, sourdough bread, right? Um, is that unhealthy because it contains gluten? Is gluten causing your symptoms? The answer is quite interesting. They did a study where they took a group of people that they proved did not have celiac and they sent them home with three weeks of breakfast bars. One was a placebo, one contained gluten, and one contained what are called fructans. Fructans are a FODMAP. FODMAP are the fermentable parts of our food. Um, there are a family of carbohydrates that like lactose that we find in dairy and fructans you will find in wheat products and they can cause gas and bloating. All right. So they sent people home with these three weeks of breakfast bars and said, eat one week each. And we're not going to tell you what is what you compare it to the placebo. When people were consuming the gluten containing bar, 
they actually had less symptoms when they were eating the gluten bar than they did the placebo. Interesting. No symptoms with gluten. When people were consuming the fructan containing bar, they were triggered. Yeah. People who have a damaged gut, people who uh, have leaky gut, they will struggle with FODMAP containing foods. This is why they struggle with dairy products. This is also why they may struggle with wheat products. It doesn't mean that the food is unwell for them. It doesn't mean that it's inflammation. There's actually no evidence of that. And when you look at microbiome studies with wheat, when people are eating whole wheat products, the microbiome loves it. Because those fructans that I've made sound like they're bad, actually those fructans are prebiotic. They are fuel for the gut microbiome. They're great for the microbes. But the problem is when you have a damaged gut, you may struggle with these foods. That actually can be overcome. You can fix that. And that's one of the things that I'm teaching in, in my new book, The Fiber Fields Cookbook. So here's my point. Am I arguing that the backbone of your diet should be bread? No. Do I think that most people should be gluten-free who do not have celiac disease? No, I don't think so. I think that when we do not have celiac disease, it should include some healthy forms of bread, including like sourdough or whole, whole wheat bread. Um, but if you want to be gluten-free, you can be, and you can be healthy. But it's very important to make sure that you are consuming adequate amounts of the gluten-free whole grains. So that would include quinoa and sorghum and teff and amaranth and brown rice. And you go down the line, but you want to make sure you're getting those whole grains if you're not going to get them from wheat. Because they're important. And I guess in relation to wheat, two other kind of related questions to that would be like with sourdough, for example, it's actually quite difficult to, it's not as, or let's say it's not as common to have whole wheat sourdough. Often the sourdough is white sourdough and obviously the yeah. fermentation of the sourdough, there's benefits, right, for the gut. Yeah. So do you think that's all right, white sourdough? And what about the glyphosate element? Do you think we should be seeking out organic wheat? Thank you so much for these questions. These are good questions. So uh, the white sourdough, look, white sourdough is better than white bread, <laughs> but most of the white sourdough that is in our market, they're not even really fermenting it because that takes time and it's complicated. They're instead just adding vinegar to give it a little bit of a sour flavor. Okay. And so what we, what you want is you want to get to know your baker or you want to do it yourself. And in fact, sourdough can be done with whole wheat or it can be done with rye and they are delicious. Yeah but you got to get to know your baker. You're not going to find this in your conventional market because they're cutting corners with their white flour, their white ultra processed and bleached flour. Yeah. Not the same. I remember my baker saying that they had their sourdough started been going 25 years. And I was kind of reassured by that. Okay. So in San Francisco, um, not to jump into American history, but in 1849, they, they, there was a big move towards San Francisco because there was the gold rush. People were finding gold and those people who moved, they actually brought with them sourdough bread. And there's a bakery in, in, in San Francisco called Boudoin. And it started then like literally, you know, more than 150 years ago. And they're using the same sourdough starter from then. From then. Wow. Oh, that's, that's why then, because my favorite sourdough is the San Francisco sourdough. And I always wondered why is it called San Francisco sourdough? But you just cleared that up nicely. 
Well, and they also, it's kind of interesting, Angela, they discovered a unique bacteria that's in the sourdough bread in San Francisco. And so they gave it a name, something along the lines of like lactobacillus San Franciscus or something like that. But yeah, so it's, they discovered a unique bacteria that exists in San Francisco sourdough. It is great sourdough, but now, um, the second question was glyphosate. This is a very relevant and important question because, um, there are people who will eat, uh, uh, wheat products, like even healthy wheat products and feel like their gut health is worse. And I actually acknowledge that it has to be organic because particularly in the United States, is this, yeah, I'd be curious. You'll have to tell me if this is true in the UK too, but in the United States, wheat is being sprayed with glyphosate. And the reason why is actually that glyphosate dries out the wheat. Part of processing wheat is when you harvest it, you have to allow it to dry out. Why wait a couple of days for it to dry out when you could just spray it with a chemical? And I worry about like, there's a growing body of evidence that glyphosate, we may say, oh, well, it's fine for humans. <laughs> I don't believe that, but, um, it's not fine for microbes. No, it's killing them, right? I think, I think I read something like that cereal, yeah, that people eat for breakfast, that there's more glyphosate than there is vitamins in it, even though they're, for, they're fortifying it with vitamins. Yeah, that's terrifying. And, yeah. and so the, the advantage of organic, one of the advantages of organic is that organic, by definition, is not allowed to be sprayed with glyphosate. Yeah. The other question I had, because you covered this I was, when I was researching, um, and I, I was struggling to get the answer to this. Um, when you look at these preservatives, in particular, in people eat a lot of wraps now, they just think, oh, I'll have a wrap for lunch, for example, uh, and it makes it easy to fold. And some of them have preservatives and they have these, um, I forget what they're called now, but that make it easier, these sort of fatty acids that make it easier for it to roll. And you've mentioned some of them, calcium propionate, <clears throat> sodium benzoate. What, what effect are these having on our gut microbes? And should we really be avoiding and just going fresh? Because the shelf life of some breads and products is extraordinary, right? If you buy it fresh and it has none of these in it, even when like sometimes you can get like a pitta bread, for example, and it has none of this in it and it's sealed tight, like vacuum packed almost. So the air can't get to it. The moment you open it, that will go off within a day or two. Put it, put it. Uh, yeah. That's these last, that's these last like an extraordinary amount of time, even in a warm cupboard. This, that's the, you know, that's real bread. Sourdough bread has a longer shelf life and that's because actually the microbes will produce compounds that actually create safety within the ecosystem of sourdough bread. So that, so sourdough bread is organically and naturally more preserved. Um, but you're right, you know, let's think of it like this. All food on this planet has a life cycle, right? So if we grow a plant, let's pretend it's cabbage, that cabbage grows to maturity and we have the opportunity to harvest it and consume it. But if we do not, it will eventually brown and it will turn mushy and it will decompose and it will turn back into healthy soil. If it feeds the next plant, the next generation that comes along will get healthy soil as a result of the first plant, right? So how do we, how does that process take place? Well, the entire life cycle of a plant involves microbes from the seed, to germination, to the sprout lifting up out of the dirt, reaching towards the sun and growing and then ultimately flowering and bearing fruit and then even decomposing. 
all of these steps involve microbes. And if you want to disrupt this life cycle and stall it out in a particular location, you kill the microbes. You retard the microbes. You keep them out. That's what preservatives do. Preservatives preserve by destroying and retarding microbes. That's what, that's what the processed meats are. That's why they can sit in a refrigerator for a year and you take a couple slices off here and there. This is why you can have a product that's, you know, a, a crisp that's wrapped up and the day you open it, it's as fresh as the day that it was prepared two years ago, right? And this is how bread can stay soft, mushy, and mold-free for three weeks on the shelf. And that's not natural. And what happens when we introduce these things into this community of 38 trillion microbes living inside of us? The answer, Angela, is that we're just touching the tip of the iceberg in terms of research studies. There's only a few of these things that we've studied that we know enough about to say, oh, yes, when we study them, they are harmful. They're not good for our microbes. I'm not here to say that every single thing in ultra processed foods are inherently bad. That would be unfair. We don't know that. But there's enough writing on the wall to say that many of them probably are bad. And we haven't done enough studies to really fully capture and understand that. And we don't want to be the person like our generation that is raised on these foods and then has health issues downstream. And of course, the studies start coming out like crazy, which by the way, in my new book, I've, I've shared over 20 studies about this. The studies start coming out saying, oh, wow, these foods are not good for us. Guess why they're not good for you? Because they're destroying your microbiome. Yeah, which is so important. So um, one, one question actually that, that I know my audience were asking, and it's a common question I get, um, is when, when you're taking probiotics, I know we're talking about we have these gut microbes within us and they're there and we just need to feed them and help them grow. But sometimes we might have low, very low levels, for example, of lactobacillus and we're, we're going to introduce probiotics. Um, how can we ensure that the ones that we're taking are encapsulated in a way or formulated in a way that actually is going to go through the stomach acid and get to the place that we want it to? Yeah, so the, they do have these capsules that they've developed these days, Angela, that are designed to resist stomach acid. Um, and so uh, so the, there is the availability of this technology. But let me just take a zoom out for a moment and talk more broadly about probiotics, because I want to try to empower your listeners with a good understanding of how to go about the probiotic question. So first of all, um, I do believe in probiotics. I do believe that they can help people. I've seen countless people that it has changed their lives. But probiotics shouldn't necessarily be the backbone of what we do from a gut health perspective. We should start with diet and lifestyle. And we should view the probiotic as being a supplement to making changes to our diet and lifestyle and moving in the right direction. And when you, when you go for a probiotic, you have to understand. So like Angela, you are one of, of 8 billion people on this planet. You are one out of 8 billion. And there is not a single person on this planet exactly the same as you in terms of your gut microbiome. So when we introduce a probiotic, we are taking this ecosystem that's already established and we're inserting some new one. And it's hard to predict what's going to happen. We don't know until we try. 
trial and error becomes the backbone of how we use probiotics. And that's okay. We just want to be smart and strategic about how we do it. Here's how you do it. You, you um, identify the probiotic that you're going to try. And you have to have something that you're going to pay attention to. Let's pretend it's bloating. I want my bloating to be better. Okay. Buy a one-month supply of that probiotic. Try it. If your bloating is better and you're comfortable with the price of the probiotic, stick with it. You've just, regardless of the encapsulation, regardless of the form or the type or the number of probiotic, if it accomplishes the goal that you are there for, you win. Flip side, you buy that probiotic for a month. You do not notice a difference. I don't care how good everyone says this probiotic is. I don't care how much marketing hype there is on the internet. Yeah. It is not doing anything for you. Yeah, it's not working for you. Stop wasting your money. Yeah. You yes, have to find what works for you. You have to find what works for you. So that's, that's the approach that I encourage people to take with probiotics is you have to try, try for one month, see if it works. And if it does not move on to something else. Yeah. And you don't need to take them forever, right? That's the thing. You're correcting something or supplementing. Yeah. 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 Now, one, one, one other thing real quick is that you can get probiotics in fermented foods. And there was a study that came out less than a year ago out of Stanford University actually some of my friends, professors, Christopher Gardner and Justin Sonnenberg. And what they did during this study, Angela, is they took a group of people and they put them on a high fermented food diet for 10 weeks. Now, high fermented food doesn't mean that like their entire diet was fermented food. Um, they were eating like, you know, I don't know, probably five tablespoons full of fermented food per day, something like that. Right. Um, but in introducing fermented food into their diet in just 10 weeks, they increased the diversity within their microbiome and reduced measures of inflammation, which are both big wins. So if there are two final take-home points as we close out here, one, eat a wide variety of plants, as many different varieties of plants as possible. This is like, don't count calories, don't count grams of fiber, count plants, get as many different types as possible, no matter what dietary pattern you have. And number two, um, you should add fermented food to your diet because most of us are not. And here's this study showing us that it can be great for your gut because it has these probiotics. Amazing. And I think in your book, Fiber Fueled, which is coming out here in the UK on the 19th of May, you actually show us how to ferment foods effectively ourselves, right? As one of the I things. I teach you how to ferment to foods. Yes. I teach you how to ferment foods. I teach you how to bake sourdough. I teach you how to sprout. Um, I have two recipe based protocols, low FODMAP, low histamine. There's a, over a hundred recipes. And there's an entire, like, uh, uh, I teach you how to overcome food intolerances. So like you don't even get to recipes until the back end of chapter four. There's a lot of teaching in there. Amazing. Amazing. I can't wait for it to hit the stores in the UK here so people can go and buy it. We will link to all of that in the show notes and please share. Where are you? I know you're pretty active on Instagram. How can people come and connect with you? So you can find me on Instagram and on Facebook as the gut health MD. Um, you can come to my website, which is theplantfedgut.com. And I have a, uh, email newsletter that people seem to really love because when there's breaking news research, you know, like it's hard for me to talk about nuanced topics on Instagram. So I'll send an email to my list and people really seem to enjoy like sort of the cutting edge gut health news. Um, and I have, I have courses, I have courses that I offer. You can be anywhere in the world and you can take my courses. And so you can find that at my website as well. 
Amazing. We will link to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise. Thank you, Angela. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. As always, the show notes will be over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast. And you can download the transcript there together with the show notes and all of the other resources that I have on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.